to begin with a couple of passages of Scripture that I just want to read to you. They're not in your notes, but the first would be Proverbs 21.30. There is no wisdom, nor understanding, nor counsel against the Lord. Daniel 4.35. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Now that same God is the one who says this, Romans 8.32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all thanks? And that includes a husband or a wife. Two things I want you to take home from this session today. The first would be we serve a sovereign God. And we'll talk about what that means. We serve a sovereign God. Secondly, you can trust Him. The church in which I grew up as a boy never mentioned the sovereignty of God to my recollection. Now, we talked a lot about man's responsibility, but we never mentioned that great concept that undergirds everything that man does, and not only that, but everything that happens in the entire universe. That's what we want to think about a little bit this morning. We'll go to a little bit to the Bible, and then we'll talk about some application of that. Isn't it great to know that God's sovereignty does not end where man's responsibility begins. Now, if you had told me way back then, when I was the age of some of you young people, that God was working all things after the counsel of His will, I would have really wondered about that. Because I could see a lot of things going on in my church, even in my family, in the nation, in the world, that didn't seem to be in accord with God's will. Surely it's not God's will for people to suffer, is it? I know it's not God's will for people to be sold off into slavery. It can be God's will for people who want to serve Him to be misjudged and maligned, could it? And is it God's will for people who want to be married not to be able to do so when they would like to? Well, if I had heard that all things were being worked out according to the counsel of God's will, I would really have wondered because there's so many things that just don't fit. What is God's sovereignty and what does it mean? Let's get a definition. God's sovereignty refers to the exercise of His power by which He rules over all His creation. What would you think of a God who could predict the future, but who couldn't do anything about it? That is not the God of the Bible. We're told specifically in Scripture that God rules over men's decisions. I would encourage you to read through some of these passages when you have time. National privilege, including His people Israel that He chose. Service in His kingdom. Jeremiah talks about being called for service while he was still in his mother's womb. The Apostle Paul in Galatians, same thing. God rules over evil. 
Now, that's a difficult one for us, but God takes the evil that men do and turns it for his good. Only God can really do that, although he calls us to do the same thing, to take whatever bad is out there to the best of our ability and turn it into good, knowing that a sovereign God would work through us in that. God rules over the angels. God rules over the forces of nature. God ruled over the atonement of Christ. This was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, according to Peter. God rules over the salvation of men who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And we could talk a lot about that one, but we would just say God is sovereign over salvation. We pray to God that certain people would come to Christ, the people for whom we're praying. God is the one who brings the missionaries to those people that would be their goal to reach, and He's the one that touches the heart to open their understanding. God rules over all things. That's the reason he can say all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If he doesn't rule over all things, how can he be sure that all things are working together for good? Well, some people would say he can just look down the road and see that all things are going to work together for good. Christ is going to return and we're going to be victorious. Well, things just don't work together for good by themselves. I trust you understand that in life. God is working things together for good for those who love Him and for those who are called according to His purpose. God rules over all things, including marriage. Whether you're married, whether you're not married, the person to whom you're married... Now, you might say, wait a minute, I saw somebody, they got married and and it didn't work out at all. Well, the Bible does say God gave them their request and sent leanness to their soul. Now, there are a lot of hypothetical situations out there, but we're talking about up front right now. What about you? If you have never been married, you can trust a sovereign God to rule over that area of your life, to direct you, to guide you, to provide for you. Now, sometimes my time frame is on the hurry-up American mode. God is just working things according to His timetable, and He generally works progressively. But I can assure you this, God's best is worth waiting for. Proverbs 16.9, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Should we plan our way? Why, certainly we should. The prudent man foresees danger and takes refuge. And we'll talk some more about that. But the Lord directs the final outcome. And then in Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure then why does all this bad stuff happen in the world? Does God not care? Does He not have the power to do anything about it? Well, yes, God does care. He cares about the lilies of the field, Scripture tells us. He cares about the birds of the air. And He cares about you and about me. And He does have the power to do something about all these wrong things that are going on. And one day He will 
do something about all evil, it will be done away. Until that time, he is patient with us. He is leading people to repentance. That time is coming. But then how do I explain if I'm 23 years old and I really would like to be married and I have sent up those prayers on many fervent occasions, but it doesn't look like anything is going on in my life. What do I do about that? If God loves me, if He cares about me, if He wants the best for me in my life, then what's going on here? Because uh, time is clicking away and I need to get some answers. Well, I hope to be able to give you some answers in the, this morning. Now, there's not anything new here. You would know what I'm going to tell you. But sometimes we need to get it in a certain perspective and just get a good grip on it. Here's the passage that is really helpful to me. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons. And of course, that includes the daughters forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Now, the law was what they had in the days of Deuteronomy. You could say that we may observe all the words of this Bible. What are the things revealed? God's precepts. What is a precept? Well, it's an authoritative rule for behavior. Sometimes we call them commandments. Sometimes we call them statutes. Sometimes we call them principles. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. That is God's precept. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. God has given us all these precepts in Scripture, and if we follow them, life works a lot better. That would be His preceptive will. Those are the things revealed. We've got it right there in the Scripture, how we're supposed to live. But on the other hand, and this is where the problem comes in, there are the secret things, God's divine decrees. That would be the decretive will of God as opposed to the preceptive will of God. And our definition on that would be the decretive will of God whereby the sovereign God for His own glory, orders all things after the counsel of His will. Now, did you hear that part? It's there on the screen. He orders all things after the counsel of His will. Sometimes He lifts the invisible protective shield and evil just flows out there on an individual or a national or corporate level. But that evil that's flowing out there, God is not tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But when He lets that evil flow, He is directing it where He wants it to go. And it will accomplish His purpose. What? Are you telling me that God assumes the responsibility for innocent people suffering, for His servants being misjudged, maligned, and even martyred? for people being sold off into slavery, for people getting married or not getting married? The answer is yes. Now, here are some passages of Scripture, and we're only going to touch base on a couple of verses out of these passages. But you can read them in context. Peter's great sermon on Pentecost. Men of Israel, listen to these words. 
Here's a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. That's Jesus Christ. This man delivered up by the foreknowledge of God. See there, I told you God is just a divine fortune teller. He could look down the road and see what was going to happen. Well, there's the foreknowledge of God, but what does that say right before that? Delivered up by the predetermined plan. Do you know what a predetermined plan is? We have a predetermined plan for this conference this weekend. We didn't just come down here to see what's going to happen. A lot of things went into the planning and implementation of the plans. God had a predetermined plan for Christ to be the Savior of the world. Now, we could talk a lot about that because that's pretty deep. But suffice it to say that Christ was the only innocent person who ever lived, really. And it was God's will for him to suffer. We'll skip on down to Acts 7. Now we have Stephen. They heard these things. They were cut to the heart. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. They couldn't stand what Stephen was saying. But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at his right hand. And skipping on down there, they got so angry that they decided we're going to kill this guy and we're going to kill him right now. So they stoned Stephen, who was calling upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So much for God's servants being misjudged, maligned, and martyred. And Stephen was just one out of thousands who were serving the Lord and who were a martyr and many tortured to death. God rules over that as well. And when one of his servants is martyred, like Jim Elliott by the Alka Indians, there are hundreds that come to take his place because they hear about it and God uses that. Genesis 50, 20. As for you guys, you brothers, you meant evil against me. This is Joseph speaking. But God meant it for good in order to bring this present result to preserve many people alive. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. They meant it for evil. They thought about killing him, but God didn't let them kill him because he had a plan for Joseph. God meant it for good. Joseph goes down to Egypt, becomes the prime minister. The family comes down, and God has a little family, 76 people, in a great big nation of Egypt, protected by the Egyptian army until they grow into a mighty nation. And then he takes them out. It's amazing to see what God is doing, but it's happening over long periods of time. So we have the things revealed, God's precepts, and we have the secret things, God's, God's divine decrees, and we could talk about God's will of disposition, God's attitude or His disposition, what is pleasing to Him. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Then why doesn't God just decree that everybody would come to repentance and we'd all be repented and we'd all be saved? I don't know. That's one of the secret things. God expresses something in His will of disposition that obviously He hadn't decreed because everything that God has decreed will come to pass. He works out all things according to the counsel of His will. See, when we start talking about the things revealed, 
And then the secret things of God, we get into some deep matters here. But I want to be careful about going further than the point at which God has spoken. And here's where he has spoken. So some of these things we're going to have to accept from him. Now, here's the question. Remember that. Things revealed, secret things. Which of those things is my domain? You can help me with this. Yeah, the things revealed, no doubt about it. And how much is revealed? This much. These precepts that I need to be doing and applying and loving people and sharing the gospel and discipling and all these good things that are pleasing to God. I'm not earning salvation with this. It's only His, His grace that I'm able to do these things. But this is the life that He wants me to live. He wants me to be loving and patient and kind and all the fruit of the Spirit. And as I'm doing those things, He's working behind the curtains to accomplish the next step in the next season of my life. Now, here's another question. Are you willing to trust God for the secret things? I don't know how it's going to happen. There are all kinds of possibilities. Everybody's story is a little bit different. But I want to encourage you that you can trust Him. He's a sovereign God. And you can trust Him. He's absolutely trustworthy. By the way, how do we walk as Christians? Well, with enthusiasm. But no, how do we walk? We walk by faith, not by sight. If I can see it, see, I can see it. I can see my plan. So I'm going to go out and implement my plan. And for a guy, it might be a little bit easier possibly, as guy's the initiator in Scripture, to go out and implement his plan. But he needs to be careful with that. Now somebody say, hey, what about Ruth? What about uncovering that guy's feet down on the threshing floor? What was that all about? Well, that was kind of a Levitical thing where if your husband had died, there might be a kinsman redeemer who could come along and uh, take the wife and uh, take the family um, inheritance and so forth. And that's what was happening there in the book of Ruth. But so it might be a little easier for guys who can get out there and initiate these things, but God is still sovereign. And He's sovereign over all things. And He's sovereign over marriage. Who's married and who is not married. Now here are four facts that would encourage you to trust God for the secret things. If you're in this church, you probably got them memorized or either talk to me after the session here because we've been over and over and over these. You've got to get these things. You've got to have them right there in your heart because this will help you in so many ways in life to be encouraged. Number one, God's love is perfect. He says in Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love. All of God's attributes are perfection. Truth, His veracity, His immutability, all of those things are perfection. But God's love for you is perfect. Think about that. My parents love me, but they're not perfect. But God is perfect. God's wisdom is infinite. That's what that Psalms verse says. God's understanding is infinite. 
He knows not only what's going to happen, all the things that could have happened. He knows all the contingencies of everything. If you threw the ball up a hundred times on the roof and it bounced off, he knows all the ways it could have bounced. He knows the ways that it is going to bounce. His wisdom is infinite. His love is perfect. His wisdom is infinite. But how about this one? God's control is sovereign. He rules. He's the king. His control is sovereign. No one can stay his hand. No one can ask, what are you doing? It doesn't make sense to me. Can you imagine telling the sovereign God? Now we can tell him that, but we want to be sincere. We want to be in prayer. We want to be asking him. And then God's goal is good. We just saw it in Joseph's life. And according to Paul in Romans 8, it's true in the life of every believer. Well, yeah, but I got this cross that I'm carrying. How could that be any good? Well, Christ carried a cross. Did that result for good? Say yes. It did. Then it's the greatest good that ever happened, the atonement of the world. That's a tremendous thing. Well, the same principle functions in our lives. We go through challenges. We go through hard times. We go through a mess that I made for myself, and God is even in control of that. You remember Peter putting his foot in his mouth all the time? Oh, I'll serve you. I'll go with you. Three times the cock is going to crow even this very evening. So God works through all of those things. God's goal is good. And what I want to do is take the challenges and the obstacles and the afflictions and whatever's coming in my life and try to see the blessing and say, Lord, help me to see the blessing in this. Because do you know what adversity will do for you? It will get you on your knees. It will get you serious about seeking God. Desperate men will do desperate deeds And sometimes God puts us in a desperate place, just like King David. When all of his men were going to kill him, the Philistines were throwing him out, and Saul was trying to kill him, and then all of a sudden they attacked the camp at Ziklag, and the Amalekites stole everybody, all the wives and children and goods. And his men said, I think we'll just stone David. He's not such a good leader anyway. But David encouraged himself in the Lord. And that's what we want to do. And that's what's coming right here with those four things as I remind myself of those things. And I want to start turning the obstacle into a blessing. That's my goal, is to take all these things and see the blessing in them. But what about God's sovereignty and my single condition? Now, how many of you have ever heard this verse before? Sometimes we just kind of pull it out and, you know, there it is. It's in pretty good context. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you what? Desires of your heart. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? The desires of my heart. Well, if I ask for a show of hands, I'm quite certain that there would be a number of people here who would say, I have sought to delight myself in the Lord, but He has not given me the desires of my heart. I'm waiting and waiting and waiting, but he's not giving me the desires of my heart. Now, does that negate the truth of the verse? Got to be careful. 
always trust the Scripture instead of your own experience. Because God can see from here to here and on beyond. You know how much of life I can see at one time? Just about this much. Just and sometimes about that much. And I'm looking, I'm saying, well, it looks to me like this is not working. You ever heard that? This is not working. I'm giving up on this whole thing. The world's out there having fun and good times. And, and here I am at home reading the Bible, fasting and praying. And this is not working. Well, be very careful with that. Now, I want to suggest to you some reasons why God may not have given you your heart's desire. And before we leave that verse, we want to tack on verse 5 because it's very important. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. Why is that verse so important? Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to what? His own way, my own way. My own way is just natural for me. It's natural that I would follow my own way. So I've got to commit my way unto the Lord. Reason number one. Reasons why, oh, excuse me. We need to define what we're talking about in this verse here. I'm getting ahead of myself. To delight means to please God, to be pleased in Him. The root of the word means to be soft, to be tender, to be pliable. I'm delighting in the Lord. I am the clay in the potter's hand. And the master potter can mold me and craft me. Desires, the prayerful petitions, the desires of my heart. It's what I want in my heart that I'm lifting up to the Lord in prayer. Many, many times I have prayed this prayer, whatever it may be. And it's the desire of my heart. All Scripture speaks of God's granting the sincere desires of those who lift up their supplication to Him. Now, sometimes it comes in a little different package. And, well, we're going to look at the reasons here in just a moment. The heart, the central organ of the soul. It's the richest biblical term for the totality of man's inner nature. Sometimes the heart and the mind would be used synonymously. Okay, here would be the reasons why God may not have granted your heart's desire. He may be getting ready to do something tomorrow afternoon, so don't give up. See, we can't see the secret things. All we can see are the things revealed. And he says, don't grow weary in well-doing. Number one, God is protecting you. You just can't have it. Now, mothers protect their little children. They don't let them play with the scissors. They want to play with the scissors or go out and play in the street or whatever it is. And mother said, nope, you can't do that. Do you remember when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt? They said, we're tired of this manna. We don't like this stuff. This stuff is bad. It tastes like some health food concoction or something. And they said, look, we're going to stone Moses and Aaron. We remember those Saturday night fish fries down in Egypt. The leeks, the onions, the garlic, the hush puppies. We're going back down there. God said, nobody is going back to Egypt. And no one did go back to Egypt. Because God said, you just can't have it. Now, if God is telling you that right now, don't be alarmed. Because you may have learned this. The way I feel today is no indication of how I may feel two weeks from now. Have you ever seen that? 
Well, that brings us to number two. God is changing your heart. If God had given me what I thought I wanted when I was 18 years old, I'm sure I'd be dead by now. I mean, it was crazy. Just, you know, the world has a lot of things there that kind of get in your heart if you're not careful. God is changing your heart. Here is something much better. Do you trust Him? God said, here is the promised land over here, a land flowing with milk and honey, orchards that you didn't plant, houses you didn't build, all this good stuff. It's just there waiting for you. Trust me, and we'll conquer the enemy. When I was in graduate school at LSU, I thought I was going to marry a girl from my hometown, lovely Christian girl. And I was old enough to do something about it. I must have been 23 years old at that time. And I thought I was going to marry that girl. But some things came up that had to do with ministry. Ministry. And it just, it just didn't, didn't work out. So there was kind of that sad parting of the ways when I was home between semesters, the spring semester and summer semester. And I went back down to LSU two weeks later. And there was Yvonne. And I said, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Now, guys are kind of crazy like that. They can get things changed around pretty quickly, see. Because the Bible says, man looketh on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. Hey, you better be checking out the heart of that person. But at any rate, God can change your mind because he has something better in mind for you. God is testing your heart. Wait a while. He tested an entire generation in the wilderness 40 years. And they all flunked the test except for Joshua and Caleb, two men of faith who were willing to, tr- willing to trust God. Are you willing to trust God? And then there's the verse there, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind. God does test us. And it may be that uh, whatever your heart's desire is, is right around the corner, but God wants you to trust Him. And maybe He's getting somebody ready over here that's not quite ready yet behind the curtain, secret things. Last one, if you, if you can think of any more, well, come and tell me. I've been looking at this thing for years. I can't think of any other reasons why God wouldn't give you your heart's desire. God is waiting on you. He's waiting on you. It's your turn. Therefore, will the Lord wait that He may be gracious unto you? Therefore, they may, that, therefore will He be exalted that He may have mercy on you? He may be waiting for you to trust Him. He may be waiting for you to get some things straightened out in your life. I don't know what all He may be waiting for. But if you come to Him and ask Him, He's not trying to cover up His will. No, I don't want you to know my will. Now, He may not show you the secret things, but He'll show you the next step of what He has in mind for you to do, and particularly if He's waiting on you. Now, here's an important thing. Does God use means? Should I be out beating the bushes, searching for every qualified candidate in the United States? Got any guys in there not married? Get them out here. Let's have a little interview. Well, <clears throat> the answer is yes. God does use means to accomplish His plan. But you don't have to be out beating on the doors, searching the neighborhood, God says, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be open. I think it's talking about knocking on His door. 
not knocking on the doors down the neighborhood in Fredericksburg or wherever you may be. It's knocking on his door. It's seeking him. Now, he does use means. He doesn't always use the means in the way that I wanted him to and in the timing that I wanted him to. But here would be some means, and we're going to hit this quickly. It comes in Genesis 24. Genesis 24. It's illustrated by the account of Abraham's desire for his son Isaac to have a wife who was a true believer. Have you all heard this story? I tell you, this is a pretty good story. Now, in that day, you love the one you marry. We marry the one we love. In other cultures, they still do it like Isaac. Who do you think has the best batting average? Well, yeah, they do by far. Because, see, we marry the one we love, and then we say, oh, I, don't love, I really don't love her anymore. The feelings have departed. We'll talk about that a little later in the day. Well, let's just look at some things here. He called in his trusted servant. He said, "Swear by God, you will not take a wife for my uh, not take a wife for my son Isaac from the Canaanites, because the Canaanites were some bad smoke, you might say." So he's sending them back over where they can marry a believer. Pray. Abraham is praying. Eliezer, the servant, I'm sure he is praying. I mean, you could read what his prayer is right there in the scripture. Who do you think is really at home in the tent praying? Isaac. That guy. He got a lot to lose in this deal. This servant comes dragging in some old gal from way over yonder he never has even seen before. Well, he's praying. Now, the uh, servant uh, establishes a, a biblical standard, it looks like. He is looking for a girl who has a servant's heart. And he sets up a kind of a fleece. But we don't need the fleece anymore. We have the Holy Spirit. And after the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, you don't see the fleece thing anymore. If you want to try some deal like that with God, that's okay with me. But I'd say be very careful with that one. So he's looking for a girl with a servant's heart. Be alert to God's provision. The girl comes along. He said, could you give me a drink of water, please, at the well? And she says, yes. And would your camels like some water? And that was the fleece, see, the camels. That's the key. Camels, do you know how much water a camel drinks? And this gal is willing to water the camels. And then uh, he went with her to meet her family, and he told about his servant's son. Flocks, herds, gold, silver. This guy is set. He is ready for marriage. And that's a very important thing. We'll mention that later in the day. So, number six, follow the advice of both sets of parents and get their blessing on the marriage. And that's what he got. That would be a good means to be looking for. And uh, Abraham, in assigning the mission, clearly expressed his commitment to be willing to wait on God's timing. He says if the girl won't come, then that's okay. The deal is off. Wait on God's timing. And finally, at every point along the way, God was acknowledged as the source of blessing and the servant thanked him for his guidance and for his provision. Now, here's the bonus in this deal, guys. Verse 24, uh, chapter 24, verse 16. The girl was morally pure and she was very beautiful. And you can imagine Isaac pacing in the tent. And he sees the caravan coming in the distance and he gets out his binoculars and, oh, she got a veil on. He can't tell a thing about it. And she gets there and lights off the camel and Isaac says, oh, oh, hallelujah. 
Thank you, Lord. And it's just a wonderful thing. And the Bible says Isaac took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now, you might not have all of those particular means where your dad's sending out a servant to check out some things over somewhere, uh, but these are just, these are means. And God does use means. But you can trust Him that He's going to work even if you're not doing everything. Well, we can't do everything, can we? It's only God's grace that we do the things we do. We ought to be praying. It's God's grace if we do pray. But God is working to give you the desires of your heart if you're delighting in Him. Now, what do you do while waiting? What was Isaac doing? Well, I'm not sure, but uh, here's what we can do. Trust in the sovereign God. This all comes from Psalm 37. Trust in Him and do good. Be busy doing the good that God wants you to do. We just said that one. And then delight yourself in the Lord. Feed on His Word and on His faithfulness. Learn to wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Cody mentioned this one. Learn to serve. Matthew 28. We're hitting these pretty quickly. If you miss one, see me, I'll give it to you. Learn how to serve. Life is going to be serving. Love is sacrificial giving. It is serving. And learn to have a good attitude. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. You're going to be married. You're going to be in a home. You need to have a good attitude. And finally, learn to be happy at home. If you've got those staying at home blues, look out. Because if you're a woman especially, you're probably going to be in the home a good bit with children, building a home, and so forth. So learn to be happy at home. Now, I want to close with a little account of God's sovereign plan in a young man's life. It always works out a little bit differently, but in the year 1933, at age 20, Dick Hillis went to the Honan Providence in China. He was the youngest missionary candidate ever accepted by China Inland Mission. I want to give you a couple of verses. Romans 8.25, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And he's there in Honan province, and he's waiting, waiting, waiting on the other side of the world. And in Romans 5.3-5, we also rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. This is Elizabeth Elliot's book, Quest for Love. The trauma of unrequited love has been the storyline of many a famous novel. It was a personal drama for Dick Hillis, missionary to China, even through the unfolding drama of God's grace toward him in the Honan. He was in love with a beautiful girl. She was in love with his best friend. Through his life, excuse me, though his life was full of many tasks and joys that are missionaries, he was often plagued with emptiness. He had friendships with many of his Chinese countrymen, but he still felt a deep loneliness. His days bulged with activity, yet he longed for something more. He longed for Margaret Humphrey. Frustration washed over him each time her name and face came to his mind. 
The beautiful dark-haired girl with hazel eyes and gentle smile was an ocean away, and yet as present as his fur-lined parka that he put on each day. He could not remove her from his thoughts. And to further complicate the matter, she was only vaguely aware of his existence. He had been only a few months into his relationship with Jesus Christ when love hit him. But the object of his love was soon going with his best friend. Dick could not simply give up and look for someone else. Why search elsewhere when you have already found what you want? His heart said, but what he wanted was outside his reach. Yet she continued to fill his thoughts and his prayers. In the last days before Dick's boat sailed for China, he still refused to give up. He recruited a trusted friend to act as a benign spy. Write me every six months, he instructed his friend, and tell me just how she is, how she's doing, and, well, if she still likes this other guy. For four years, the letters arrived from America. Time ticked by in six months' increments carrying the monotonous toll of the situation status quo. Dick often reminded himself that Jacob in the Old Testament waited seven years for his bride. He wondered if the same would be asked of him. He had loved her throughout his years of Bible school. Now, after four years in China, he could not stop loving her. Yet he wondered, have I made a mistake? Am I clinging to a wild dream? Promises and proverbs jumbled in his mind as he sought his Bible for guidance, some kind of assurance, hope maybe that God would give him Margaret for his wife. Hope deferred maketh the heart sick, he read in Proverbs. And then, he that spared not his own son, shall he not also freely give us all things? He was sure that she was God's choice for him. Time could not erase her face from his mind, nor her name from his lips. His loneliness for her did not subside even in the face of his demanding work among Honan's masses. He ached for the companionship of Margaret Humphrey, for the joy of private jokes and whispered words, for the bliss of holding her in his arms. Yet even as he dreamed of her, reality infringed on his mind. She probably had given him little or no thought since he left for China. It was a very hot summer day when the Chinese postman handed him another spy letter. Dick opened it with very little anticipation. He knew by heart what it had to say. But as his eyes scanned the words, he suddenly caught his breath. They are no longer going together. Margaret feels that God wants her to serve in China. She has already been accepted to China Inland Mission, and she will sail in six months. Before he reached the last sentence, his legs felt like overcooked Chinese noodles. He dropped to his knees and prayed, Thank you, Lord. If you'll only get her safely to Shanghai, I'll do the rest. Then suddenly he remembered. I have no reason to believe she's interested in me. And he asked himself, What am I going to do? I can't go to Shanghai to meet her. I can't just leave my work and travel hundreds of miles to woo a girl I haven't seen for four years. What would the mission think? Oh, Lord, I will need your help in this matter, even after she arrives in Shanghai. He had no choice but to make his first move by letter. Faint heart never won fair lady, goes the saying. So he mustered all his courage and put his heart into a letter that went like this. For years I have loved you. I have prayed for you and I want you to be my wife. I mean, he's just putting it out here. You've not seen me for nearly five years, but we did know each other pretty well for the years we were in Bible school. You will say you can't accept my proposal without courtship. 
I have to answer that in our circumstances there can be no courtship until you have accepted my proposal. This is difficult, I know, but it looks as if your decision must be based on God's will for your life. It's easy for me to believe that you are God's will for my life, as I've already admitted my deep love for you. But for you, it's a much bigger problem, so I will gladly give you six months to answer me. This guy's really generous. (laughs) This allows you time to really pray. God will show you His will, I know. Before I close, let me ask you a question. Did you come to China because you loved the Chinese or because you were sure this was God's will for you? I know your answer. You came because you knew it was His will. Knowing this, you are confident that He will give you His love for the Chinese. Will you, dear, please let me relate the same clear logic to your decision? If it is His will for you to be my wife, then will He not give you a love for me, Margaret? That's the way guys think. I'll be praying for you every day, many times a day, because I love you. Margaret Humphrey arrived in Shanghai in October 1936. She had expected strange emotions and confusing experiences upon arrival in a foreign country. The missionary orientation class had tried to prepare her for those, but nothing could have prepared her for the confused state of her feelings when she opened the letter that was waiting for her at the mission headquarters when she arrived. She stared at the signature at the bottom of the letter, Dick Hillis. Her forehead creased in puzzlement. She remembered him from the Bible Institute days as a good-looking young man known for his outgoing personality and unusual energy. I haven't given him a fleeting thought since he left for China, she mused in amazement. Letting her mind rove back over the years, she recalled his more than passing interest in her during their years at Biola. But even then, she thought, I felt nothing more than friendship toward him. And now this, a marriage proposal. She was baffled and a little more than shocked. Margaret had had her share of marriage proposals in recent years, but she had refused to let anything or anyone interfere with her desire to serve God as a missionary in China. After graduation from Biola, she attended the University of Washington, and she applied to and was accepted by the China Inland Mission. Now she arrived in China full of confidence that she was finally ready to embark on her life's work. But her confidence changed into confusion as she regarded the letter from Dick Hillis. What am I going to do? She asked herself. What am I going to do? In honesty, she had to say she didn't love him. She admired him and had enjoyed his company on the few occasions they had been together. But after four years in China, he could be a completely different person. And like any other young woman, she had her own dreams of someday experiencing a great love. Was she to lay that aside in order to marry a man who in many ways was a stranger to her? She could make no decision at the moment. She needed time. Would six months be enough, she wondered, to determine that this man she had not seen for so long was the man God had chosen to be her husband. Lord, she prayed, you have guided me this far. I will trust you to lead me into the decision that will glorify you. Pretty good prayer. Margaret was determined to tell no one about the marriage proposal she had received from the young missionary in the Honan province. She would pray about it alone and wait to see the direction God would lead. On one of her first days in Shanghai, a missionary lady invited her to tea for no apparent reason. The conversation turned toward the subject of marriage. I met my husband only once, the veteran missionary told Margaret, before he proposed to me. I prayed about it and felt God was telling me to accept. Margaret sat forward in her seat, her attention riveted on the woman whose face was filled with peaceful joy. 
We were married not long after that, she continued. God has blessed our marriage with true love that has grown deeper through the years. Margaret wondered at that time why she had been selected to hear this story of the woman's unusual marriage. She was soon treated to another moment that caused her to wonder. She was paid a visit by one of her former Biola professors who was teaching in China for a year. Margaret, the woman said, I've been praying for quite some time that God would bring you and Dick Hillis together. Margaret was shocked. No one knew of the letter containing the proposal. No one knew of the searching that was going on in her mind as she prayed and considered what God would have her do about Dick Hillis. The prayers of this saintly woman are usually answered, she thought, and trepidation filled her. (laughs) Within a few short days, the missions sent Margaret to the China Inland Missions Woman's Language School in the city of Yangchow. She was busy from dawn till evening studying the language, becoming acquainted with China's complex culture, and learning to know her missionary classmates. She had little time to do more than pray daily about Dick's proposal and carry on a weekly correspondence with him. Through his letters, she came to know him as a direct and definitely appealing young man. She was soon looking forward to his letters and often found herself storing up bits and pieces of her life that she wanted to send him in the next letter. In March, she learned that she could not put her decision off much longer. The mission director was due to arrive soon and appoint each of the new missionaries to their stations. They would be scattered all over China. Unless she told the director that she had future plans, including a certain young missionary in Honan, Margaret might find herself in some distant southwestern province for a seven-year period. That would no doubt rule out any possibility of marriage to Dick. Yet she wrestled alone with the question, how was she to decide God's will? She recalled God's guidance in the past and how he used little signs along the way to lead her to Biola and to the University of Washington and then to China. Did it mean something that God had called her to the same country as Dick, to the same mission organization, and that Dick had waited for her all these years? She prayed and waited, and as the six months came to an end, She knew she had come to a decision. A deep inner assurance filled her, and she knew that marriage to Dick Hillis was God's plan for her life. There could be no doubting it. She was certain. Before Dick received her letter saying yes, she told the mission director God wanted her to go to the Honan province and become Mrs. Dick Hillis. Though the decision was made, and though she could not doubt the rightness of the decision, there was a measure of fear in her mind. Lord, I am not afraid of doing your will, she confided in her prayers, but I am afraid of the unknown, and so much of my future husband is unknown to me. Dick's letters did much to remove the fear from Margaret's mind. They were full of all the love and exuberance of a young bridegroom-to-be. And Margaret began to sense a responsive love for him growing in her own heart once she said yes to God. The wedding plans took form through the letters that traveled between them, The ceremony was scheduled to take place in Hankow, central China, in six months. Six months, Dick thought. It's too long. And yet six months didn't seem long compared to the six years he had already waited for the love of the woman of his dreams. That's an interesting story, isn't it? And that's the account of one guy who was waiting on the Lord for the secret things and, of course, felt that God had given him a direction in his life. If God has given you a direction, I trust that uh, you would check that out with parents, with those in whom you have confidence, 
and of course prayer and getting some others to pray for you.